I thought freelancing would be all of the great bits about my job or the bits I really enjoyed. So the writing and the doing the actual work minus the boss and the office politics and the commute to the office. But that is not what freelancing is. You are the entire business. You're not just your own boss. You're also the employee at the same time. You're the head of finance. You're the head of marketing. You're everything. It's more like taking the company I used to work for and rolling it into one person and you are that person. I'm Emily Belay, the founder of Vespot.com, a thriving community that financially empowers women, author of You're Not Broke, You're Pretty Rich, and host of The Wallet. Today, I speak to Anna Codriarado, a journalist, podcaster, and author whose first book, You're the Business, How to Build a Successful Career When You Strike Out Alone, is the essential practical guide for freelancers and those running a business of one. After being made redundant in 2017, Anna took the leap and began freelancing while documenting the highs, lows and harsh realities of self-employment in her newsletter. Taking the leap from full-time employment into the world of self-employment can open up new opportunities, earning potential and flexibility in your career. But there are also practical and emotional challenges that come with being your own boss. So in today's episode of The Wallet, we discuss one how to build healthy routines when you work for yourself and how to avoid burnout when you're setting your own schedule. Two, Anna talks about setting your prices based on your value rather than your time and the journey she's been on over the last four years to price herself on the value she brings as opposed to the time a project might take. Three, we look at how to budget and organize your finances when you're self-employed. Anna also shares tips on saving for the future when you have a fluctuating income. I'd also just like to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, PensionB. PensionB has helped over 400,000 customers to be pension confident. It enables savers to take control of their finances by helping them transfer their old pensions together into one simple online plan. With PensionB, you can manage your pension like you manage your bank account. Check your real-time balance, see your projected retirement income, and set up contributions and withdrawals, all from the palm of your hand. Plus, you'll get human support from your very own UK-based account manager, or as Pension B calls them, Big Keeper. You can sign up to Pension B today with the names of your old pension providers in just five minutes, and if you're self-employed, you can start a new pension from scratch. As always with investments, your capital is at risk. Please note that the information made available on this podcast is provided for educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. If you have any questions, you should seek advice from an independent financial advisor. Hello, Anna. Hi. Thanks so much for having me here. It's nice to see you. We haven't seen each other for a while, like maybe a Vespot event a year ago or more, a year and a half. It must have been something like that, a pensions event. And you're here today because, I mean, of course, if people don't know your work, you're going to introduce yourself, but you just actually published your first book. So I thought that would be just the perfect time to have a money conversation. I know you you like to talk about money. I love it too. So yeah, let's see. But maybe for, for those you know who don't know you, can you, can you introduce yourself, please? Sure. Yeah. So I'm Anna Codrarado. I'm a freelance journalist, podcaster 
and now also author. I write about business, culture and technology, but what that really means in practice is that I think, write and talk a lot about money, careers, success, all of these things. And yeah, I've just written my first book, which is called You're the Business. Um, It's very much a handbook for anyone who wants to work for themselves. So my aim with it was to answer all of the questions, both practical and emotional, about what it's really like to freelance or to run a business of one. So yeah, that's me. I I read the book actually in, I think, one or two days (laughs) as soon as I got it. I loved it because it's so practical and it will take you from maybe even if you have a full-time job and you want to go freelance to maybe you're already freelancing how to find your client how to set your prices what happens if things go wrong so I think today we'll look at you know some of the parts of the book but it's yeah like super really loved it and that's what I love like you know pragmatic practical also talking about the emotions as a freelancer and maybe we'll we'll start with that you we're actually working. You were an employee. And in the book, you talk about losing your job, I think in 2017. And then you had lunch with your mom and you told her, yeah, actually, I want to be, I want to become a freelancer. I mean, how do you know you're ready to be a freelancer and you want to work for yourself? That's quite a big jump, I, I guess, for most people who have, you know, a full-time job. It is a really big jump. And I have been reflecting on this uh, since the book came out or, or actually during the writing of the book. The reality is that working in what I call traditional employment, so working for a company, working for somebody else and freelancing or working for yourself or self-employment are very, very different things. Freelancing, especially, you know, I am a journalist. I was working for a media company. I thought freelancing would be all of the great bits about my job or the bits I really enjoyed. So the writing and the doing the actual work minus the boss and the office politics and the commute to the office. But that is not what freelancing is. You are the entire business. You're the business, hence the name of the book. You're not just your own boss. You're also the employee at the same time. You're the head of finance. You're the head of marketing. You're everything. It's more like taking the company I used to work for and rolling it into one person and you are that person. And so it's actually really hard to get your head around what it's like to work for yourself until you actually just do it. And for me, it was um, actually quite a slow and gradual process of starting to think that maybe I wanted to do things on my own. And it very much came from a place of, I don't feel like work is working for me. I don't feel like I fit in here. I'm struggling just to be in the office. All of these things just started creeping in and they actually originally started as as a lot of self-doubt. But then the questions started coming of, oh, well, maybe actually things would be better if I did this on my own. Maybe I'm actually built for working for myself. And so it was a real gradual process. So even though I lost my job on a Friday, made the decision to go freelance that weekend and started freelancing on the Monday. The seeds were planted way before that. And I I do still wonder, would I have been brave enough to have made this leap had I not been pushed because of losing my job? And I obviously I don't know, I don't know the answer to that. But that's kind of where I was at, and that's sort of how I came to this. And really, any conversation about freelancing is also a conversation about work 
as a whole, because a big part of it is I wasn't feeling fulfilled in traditional working environments. And yes, I feel really empowered now. I feel like I have control over my career. It's taken me to places that I just felt like I wasn't getting to when I worked for a company. And that's all brilliant. And I love that. And I wouldn't change anything about how I work. But it does beg a question of, well, why did I have to leave the security, let's call it that, of a regular paycheck and benefits and all of these things? Why did I have to leave that in order to feel fulfilled in my work? That These, these are kinds of questions that I think are really important to think about. But yeah, so what looked like a very quick, rapid decision was actually a good it was years in the making really. And it just, it, it was being pushed that made me actually do it in the end. And you never learn to be, you know, freelancer. I guess most people graduate and, and then they go for, for a full-time job. I mean, I remember, you know, setting up Vespod. It's also quite complicated to understand like, what's a freelancer? Are you a business owner? Are you, you talk about a company of one. That's also a really good book, actually. You know, what are you? How do you define yourself? And you talk about all the, the terms in the book. How do you call yourself today? I call myself a freelancer because I'm comfortable with that term. Also, by and large, I fit the broad definition of it. I work for myself and by myself. I am a one-person band. I'm doing everything. I think partly I'm a, I'm attracted to the, to the term for lots of different reasons. As I write in the book, I really enjoy the original definition of the word. It was it kind of first entered the English language. All the earliest entry that can be found is from Walter Scott Thomas's book Ivanhoe, which is it's a historical novel. So it's um, even though it was written in the I think the 1800s, it's set in the kind of Knights of the Round Table era. And free lances were soldiers, essentially, who were leasing out their lances, their swords to the highest bidder, which in those in that in that kind of context was, uh, you know, kind of like fighting in in armies. So it was whatever nation or wealthy landowner would pay them the most money. I just really like that definition or that kind of early entry because it's quite mercenary, which is not to say that I think freelancing is all about being greedy or anything like that. But it just it just reminds me that this is about knowing your worth and fighting for it. So I, I, I like that definition. Also, in the industry that I'm in, media and journalism, freelancer is the term that's used. Whereas, you know, if you work in tech, Though, you know, that sort of industry, it's more entrepreneur or solopreneur are the kind of terms that are used. So I'm comfortable with it. But the whole point is it's about it's about being intentional with what you call yourself. And it's about thinking, what is an accurate description of what I do, but also what chimes with me and my identity? What are other people in my industry using? If you don't like the word freelancer for valid reasons, don't use it because there are people who don't like it because... Some people think it's not quite as professional as say, say, you know, small business owner or independent worker or whatever term you prefer. Some people don't like the fact that it has the word free in it. I take that to mean free as in freedom. Other people take it to mean free as in unpaid labor. So yeah. it's just about, you know, you you have the the real beauty of working for yourself is you get to set all of the rules. You give yourself your own job title. So you get to pick the one that works for you. That's a really good point on, you know, how do people see you? Because you're a freelancer and 
I feel, you know, going from, you know, full-time employee to being a freelancer. I think when you call yourself an entrepreneur, it's slightly different because you, you know, it's super trendy to be an entrepreneur. It's quite sexy. People love it. And they're like, wow, amazing. Like you left. But actually, if you leave to become a freelancer, sometimes people are like, yeah, it's just because you want to work less. You know, you don't want to be a full-time employee anymore. Did you get this type of remarks or, or, or you know, thoughts or <laughs> people around you? I'm sure people were saying behind my back, but the the one conversation that really sticks out in my mind is I, so when I first started freelancing, I was doing quite a lot of work for the New York Times on a freelance basis. And I could have never have dreamed of getting a job at, at the New York Times. It wasn't even on my radar that that was a possibility. And so to land bylines and to get regular work with my dream publication so early on in my freelancing career was something I was really, really proud of. And I remember having this conversation with a fellow journalist who he was asking me what I was up to. And I was telling him about all these stories I was writing for the New York Times and how much I was sort of enjoying my experience as a self-employed person. And he had been working for the same company since so we did our master's course together. And since we graduated, he'd been working for the same company, quite a traditional media outlet. And he just said, yeah, but you're never going to make as much money freelancing as you are working for a company. And just dismissed everything that I was saying and kind of my achievements, dismissed them because he had this very fixed idea of what success looks like in yeah. journalism and also what the earning potentials are. And I did challenge him on it. I said, but no, the, there is a ceiling to what you can earn. Whether or not there are bans that are made public, companies do, they're not going to pay you an indefinite amount of money. Whereas in theory, of course, this is really, really hard, but in theory, there is absolutely no ceiling to what I can earn. I can have as many, I can put my fingers in, in as many pies as I want as a freelancer. I can build as multiple income streams. I can think creatively. There really is no ceiling to what I can earn. And I just thought that was a really, really interesting conversation. So, so those are the kinds of comments I had. I had a flatmate when I first started freelancing and her partner asked me, how, how do I not just watch TV all day? So I, I kind of had like those sorts of comments. I don't have time. <laughs> I don't have time because if I'm not working, I'm not making money. And I do think the pandemic maybe has changed this, but this was pre-pandemic. It was a while ago now. I think back then there's that confusion of, working from home as an employee versus freelancing, working from home as a freelancer, these two very different things. You know, if you get back in the before times and you would get the occasional day to work from home because you had to let in the tradesperson, of course you'd just watch TV because it doesn't have any impact. You're As an employee, you are paid based on your input, whereas as a freelancer, you're based on your output. So if you don't do the work, you don't get the paycheck. If you have the odd day where you're not really putting in 100% or even 20% as an employee, you're still getting a paycheck every month. So it's, it's all of these sorts of things that I think kind of play into ideas about freelancers as just not really doing any work or, you know, the image of the freelancer with their laptop by the pool. This is at least not for me, it's not been my reality of freelancing at all. It's quite interesting, this point you're raising about, you know, trading time for money. That's what you do as a freelancer. Whereas, as you know, when you have a full-time job, you get a regular income, maybe you get a bonus. It's very different. 
And actually, it's quite difficult also at the same time, because everything you do or don't do has some, you know, value associated to it. So we'll talk about how, you know, you define like, you know, your values and self-worth and how this is different for from money. But how do you organize your time? How do you make sure you get paid and, and assign like some value to, you know, anything that you do and, and the work you do? So this is a really big one, I think, for freelancers, because I think this kind of goes back to the point of we're not really taught about actually making money at, you know, at school. We're taught about careers. Success. Success, exactly. But we're not taught about how to make money and what it means to make money. And so a problem that freelancers really can fall into is that I have a fairly simple business as a freelance journalist. I write articles or make content for media outlets and they pay me for that. It it kind of is a straightforward exchange of time for money. And what's good about that is that it just keeps things simple. Yeah. But then what is bad about that is that you can fall into what Alex Holder, who is a brilliant writer and has written an amazing book about money called Open Up, she coined this term in her book, the freelance trap. And so it's this idea that any minute our day spent not working as a freelancer costs something. So if you take a holiday, it not just costs you the cost of the holiday, but also the time that you aren't working. Yeah. Opportunity if you have stuff. Yeah. Not working. Exactly. Yeah. If you have a hangover as a freelancer, it costs you your half day, your day rate. A big and migraine, so like, you know, anything, <laughs> like you can't work. Yeah. Exactly. And it's really, and, and as she wrote, and I completely agree, it can be really dangerous to think like that because that's how you end up overworking. That's how you end up never taking a holiday because then suddenly all your time is money. And that's a bad headspace to get into. And so just from a super practical point of view, I just actively tried to stop pricing on a day rate. I kind of have a day rate in my head as in money I want to be earning every day. I try to get away from actually selling that to clients, especially outside of the um, any kind of work that I do where it is possible to negotiate my rate. And so that's been a massive journey and it's taken a while for me to get my head around because when you first go freelance, you kind of think, oh, you know, I'm just, I'm working on a day rate. I'm just essentially selling my time, but your time isn't what is valuable. The value you add as a freelancer is made up of your skills, your creativity, and your expertise. And if anything, the, the time factor comes in the kind of respect of if the client needs something urgently, or if you've been doing something for a certain amount of time. And so therefore you have this knowledge because you've been doing this for so long. It's not about, it takes me 20 minutes to complete this project. Therefore I'm charged just for 20 minutes. There's this kind of, it's a a very old anecdote and I'm sure people have heard it before, but it's about there's a company that has a piece of machinery, the machinery breaks down and it's costing them tens of thousands of pounds every day. That piece of machine isn't working. They bring in a consultant. She comes in, looks at it for 20 minutes, bangs the machine once it springs back to life and the company's back up and running. She sends in a really, really expensive bill and the company push back on it. And they say, 
they say that there's no way that that could have been the amount because it only took you 20 minutes. And she says, it might've taken me 20 minutes, but it took me 20 years to know where to hit the machine. It's that kind of thing. And it takes a long time to get your head around these things because like I said, there are not things that we're taught. We're taught that our success is measured by how much we earn and all of these outdated ideas. So it takes a while to un unlearn all of these bad habits that we've kind of grown up around or that we've sort of learned from traditional employment to really understand what value actually means in a context of working for yourself. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll talk about organizing your finances, but there's one last thing I wanted to ask you around knowing your value. It's so hard. Like, I mean, I do it for myself also now because, yeah, maybe, you know, I'm an entrepreneur slash also freelancer and doing like, you know, public speaking and writing and stuff like that. And when people ask you, you know, you know, how much does it cost to work with you? This is always like so difficult, especially when you're starting. So what are the things you can do to try to understand the value you're bringing? And when do you know you have to, you know, increase your, your prices? And that's, I guess the starting point is trying to understand, okay, how much do, do I need to live on? Um, and then, you know, try to build up also on, as you say, like, you know, your expertise uh, and, and try to define your value. But it's really hard to put a number on either a day of work or maybe uh, like a project. So how, how do you do that? And how did you do that uh, initially? So I started, I think, like most people who, who go into working for themselves, I started from what do I need to live off of? And I think that's, that's a great place to start. But I then learned through reading and talking to people that thinking like that kind of backs you into a corner. You start from that kind of scarcity place of, I just need to make this money the to minimum. cover my costs. Yeah. The minimum. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, like I said, it kind of this sort of plays into the, well, actually this, the sky is the limit. Do you actually believe this now that, you know, money is, uh, is abundant? Yes. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Yeah, I do. I believe that I believe there's room at the top for everyone. You know, all these cheesy phrases, I really do believe they're true. There's room at the top for everyone. There is money. There, yeah. there, there is money out there. It's a matter of finding it and finding the people who have it because we do live in a world where there are vast sums of money flowing everywhere, <laughs> everywhere and our economies everywhere. And, you know, it's about finding it and it's about learning, you know, and again, also this kind of like harks back to what your goals are, what kind of business you want, what you believe about money, what you want to earn, the role money plays in your life, all of these things, because money like food in and of itself is neutral. Money in, is not good or bad. It's how we feel about it. It's the emotions that we attach to it, yeah. uh, which are which come from our context, our environment, how we grew up, you know, all of these things. And so that's kind of where I started. I kind of started like make a list of this is how much my rent is. This is how much, you know, these are my outgoings. This is what I just need. This is the bare minimum I need to earn. And that is a good place to start. But then I just started thinking, well, hold on a minute. Is there not a better way to think about my value? How much are my skills worth? How much is my creativity worth? What is, you know, my expertise? All of these things are what actually make up my value. And then the other half of the value equation is actually the seller's perspective. So value is not the same for everyone. You know, let's take my book, for example. There is a lot of value in my book and I believe in it. And I think it's really, really important and very valuable, but it's not valuable to someone who has absolutely no interest in working for themselves. 
for them, they, they will think that 11 pounds is better spent elsewhere. Whereas I would hope there are freelancers out there who look at it and think, my God, 11 pounds for this amazing book. I'll pay a thousand pounds for this. <laughs> exactly. Value is an objective, basically, is what I'm saying. It depends on the seller as well. And so that's something that's really, really important to get your head around as well as a freelancer. I think that was very important for me to understand that you know it's not personal, basically, and that there is always a context to anything that you sell. And so to a large extent, I don't really have, I don't have set prices. I don't have a set day rate in, in, in regards to what I charge clients or how I price things because everything has a context. And so I try to price things based on what value I think that I can bring. Also, I listen to what the client is saying and, you know, try to kind of like take heed of their budgets as well, to a certain extent, depending on how kind of how much I want to work with them. And so, yeah, it's just, it's really tricky. It's an ongoing process. And truly, I think the most transformative thing I ever did was make active efforts to find people, surround myself with people who will have really open conversations with me about money, about what they charge, about what the growing rates in the industry are, all of these things, because that really kind of helps you push and ask for more because it is worth repeating. There is money out there. So it's just about going for it if that's what you want. Going for it and maybe, yeah, it can take a bit of, of time also to, you know, find it and discover it. I love your approach to like money and, and seeing it as a tool and how, you know, open you are about yeah, money is abundant and it's, you know, it's, it can be a good thing and stuff like that and you should go get it. It's not the case, I guess, for everyone. And for some people, it's quite hard to, you know, rewire their, their money mindset. Did you always have like such a positive view um, about maybe, yeah, it's okay to make money or did, did you actually worked on, on that over, over the years? I don't think I always had that view because I was thinking about this recently. I always wanted to be a journalist, but I went to a university where Lots of people went into the traditional profession. So law, accountancy, consulting, and I don't mean freelance consulting, I mean consulting at the management consulting. And so I was very frustrated about the fact that there was so much conversation about careers and people saying, oh, I'm going to go and be a lawyer because I love the law. Or I want to go and be a management consultant because I love consulting. I just found that really hard to believe. And I kind of just didn't really understand why the discourse wasn't, I want to be a management consultant because I love money. Just say it. If that's your truth, just it's fine. But that wasn't what I wanted at that time. I think, I don't know. I, it's really hard for me now to kind of think back then. Is it that I just didn't think it was possible to make money in journalism? Or is it that it wasn't important to me because, uh, you know, I was what, in my early twenties, I was young, naive, and didn't kind of have enough sort of ability to think forward about what do I want my life to look like? How much is that going to cost me? All of these quite big questions that we are just not taught to ask of ourselves and what we want from life. So I think it's definitely evolved. I definitely kind of had this sort of idea that quote unquote rich people are bad people and earning money is yeah. greedy. And I don't really know. I, I'm sure I don't really know what changed. I don't know to what extent it's that I got older and my life responsibilities changed and suddenly actually financial independence became really, really important. Or whether it's that 
things changed because I went freelance. One thing I will say that I think has always been the case is that I have always known that it is very important to build financial independency as a woman. And that's something that was taught to me by my mother. So that was always a constant in terms of money. And again, this is something as, as you kind of have touched on, ultimately that's where, that's where our money mindsets and our money beliefs come from. It's how we were brought up or what was around us in those formative years. They play a huge part in how you see money, how you feel about it, the emotions you attach to it. And so I'm just so fortunate to have that experience of having a mum who really impressed on me the importance of the, the the role that money plays kind of as in your life as a woman uh, and sort of the importance of financial, of being financially independent. It's an evolving journey and it is really, really hard because it's it's not okay to go around saying you want to make money, which is why I think stuff like what you do and stuff like this podcast are so important because it's a lot more nuanced than, than that. Yeah. Like there is a, quite a big middle between just being completely just, you know, just wanting to make money for the sake of it, just wanting to be rich. And they're kind of like being some sort of greed to it. And the other end, struggling to make ends meet, uh, working in an industry where you sort of think like, you know, like the creative industries where you think I can never possibly make any money. There's quite a big middle in between those. And I think it's being uh, a bit ethical about, you know, money and, 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 you know, what is money for you? And you're right. It's not about, you know, being the you know richest on earth. And it's quite hard, actually. But making sure you're financially independent, you, you, you have enough money. But on this, like, is money good? Is, is money bad? You know, do you have, like, for example, dream clients? Like, would you accept money from uh, anyone? I know it's, you know, it's quite a, a tricky one. And I get approached by, you know, lots of brands and stuff. Do you have, like, values and, and sort of, like, principles and you decide you know, I can work with this type of client or I won't work with this type of client. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we actually were talking about this recently. So I run a podcast and we do um, advertising on it. And we were talking about, you know, which clients do we take money from and which clients do we not? It's actually, it's really, really hard because the reality is that where do you draw the line? Because there are lots of companies that are not doing good things, but then there are also lots of companies that are being perceived to be completely unethical when in reality, it's almost kind of, we've sort of got to a stage where sort of all big business equals bad. And that's not, that's just not necessarily true. And it, it is really hard. It's kind of, it's something that I try really hard to be very diligent about, but then also not fall down the trap of just assuming that all big companies must, or, or all for-profit companies must yeah. be bad. And at the same time, there's also something very interesting that I think that's happening in the kind of startup space where there's this idea that all startups are, you know, socially driven, purpose-driven businesses and therefore are good when there are plenty of startups that quite frankly, especially in the fintech space, quite frankly, they are, they are saying one thing and then you just like peek under the bonnet and they are doing a lot more harm than good. And, you know, they profess to want to solve the world's financial health problems, but actually you look at their business model and you think, my God, you're actually making the situation a whole lot worse. So it is really, really difficult because there's a tension in that, like I said, I'm a, I'm a freelancer. I work for myself by myself and 
I do need to make money and pay my bills. Yeah. I, I try to exist within the frameworks that we have and also carve out my own path and make sure that I am living by my own values and always trying to kind of do what I think is ethical and sustainable. But it can be really, really hard to do that as well. It's, you know, it's really easy to say stuff like, oh, I'm never going to take any money from big tobacco or big oil. But then at the same time, there are companies that are much more of a gray area where you kind of think, I like what they stand for, but I'm not really happy with how they execute it. So it's it's really, really hard. And it's, an, it's a thing that I think about a lot and do try to sort of form ways in which to work in ways that I feel that I'm proud of. Now, if we talk a little bit personal finances, because you're a freelancer, a business owner, and everything can be a bit confusing. Like, what are your business finances? What are your personal finances? When you invoice a client, do you just, you know, pay everything to your current account? Do you save money? I mean, we've been talking a lot about, you know, budgeting rules and how it works if you have a regular salary. That's actually, I mean, it's hard to save, but it's much easier to put in place some processes, like do some proportional budgeting. But when you're a freelancer, you don't really know what to expect. People pay you usually very late. How do you budget? How do you make sure you pay yourself, that you have enough to live on, but also, uh, I guess, like some savings and some long-term savings? So this is great. This is going to be my, my favorite part of this because we get to really go into it. I love talking about this stuff. So um, I can, I feel like I'm about to really open up my finances. Okay. So my finances are organized in three broad areas, business, personal, and joint. So I have a partner and we live together. We own our house together. And so those are kind of like the three broad areas of my finances and each are managed with their own budget and they all have their own bank account. I am a big fan of the mobile banking revolution because they just do a lot for you. So you can do quite a lot just in the apps themselves. I think because I've been away from the kind of high street banks for a few years now, I'm sure the high street banks yeah. by now, I, I, my understanding is they're, ca they're catching up. So to me, it's all about just find the tools and the systems that work for you. And so all of my freelance income goes in and out of my business account. I use Starling if anyone is interested and everything that I invoice goes in there. And then what I do is I kind of pay myself, I'm a sole trader, but I still pay myself a freelancer salary. So every month I pay myself an amount that I know. So is it a fixed amount every, you're trying to pay yourself the same amount every month? Yeah. Yeah. So the way we've organized our joint finances is that anything that basically gets paid for the both of us comes out of a central pot. So we both put in a fixed amount every month and then household bills, groceries, when we go out for dinner together, you know, paying the vet's bills, paying the petrol, all of this kind of stuff, our joint finances, they get paid from that account. And so we put a fixed amount in. So I know how much I'm supposed to put into that account every month. And so that I transfer in there. And then I also kind of transfer money into my, my personal account, which is just my money. And that's for stuff like the clothes that I buy, my 
hair appointments. Uh, what I, th- I would say probably my biggest personal cost is my hair ma- maintenance. I know this is a podcast, but I've completely bleached blonde and it's, it's quite high. Um, it's quite a high outgoing. All of that stuff goes in. That's my personal money. And I, I pay myself a fixed amount in there. And then from there, I work for savings. I work on a percentage basis because I don't know what I'm going to make every month. And so I can't say I'm going to send X pounds to my savings accounts because I don't know what they're going to be. So I work on a percentage basis. So, well, first and foremost, when money comes into my business account, the first thing I do is I I send a percentage away for, I send the tax, I, I put the tax money aside. And then I put a percentage into, I have a kind of like a business sort of, call it my benefits package. That's basically times where I need to cover income. So if I get sick, if I go on holiday, if for whatever reason I... Your rainy day fund, like business emergency fund. Well, it's kind of, yeah. But for business, yeah. Exactly. It's for business. It's for situations where I kind of think of emergency funds in kind of like two categories. There are unexpected costs. So emergency, so your laptop breaking, when you have to pay money for something... And then there are times when you don't have enough income. You knew the bill was coming. You just didn't have enough to pay for it. So those are the kind of two ways I think of... Cash flow issues, basically. Client paying late and uh, yeah. Exactly. I have an emergency fund, which I, at the moment, the way I structure my emergency fund is just a general emergency fund. It's for emergencies in my personal and business life. But then I have this other emergency fund for my business, which is a common situation for freelancers where you don't have the income. Typically I use that for things like, you know, I used it when I was writing my book. I used it because I had to take time off to write the book and I had still had to cover my my costs. So it's it's those kinds of situations where I use that. And I, I top that up on a percentage basis. I, I have a little spreadsheet. I've inputted all of the formulas. So every time I receive money, I put the amount into the top of the spreadsheet and it auto-populates and it tells me, this is what you need to put aside for tax. This is what you need to put aside for your benefits package fund. This is what you need to put aside for, you know, all of, all of these things. I also kind of do my, even though my, my pension comes out obviously on a fixed basis, but I, I feed that fund using percentages as well. Yeah. So that's kind of how I sort of like work things out. Also things really, you know, things change and evolve as well, depending on what my financial goals are, what I'm kind of like doing, all of that kind of stuff. But those are sort of the three broad areas that I've organized things around. Yeah. I guess it's a lot about like being organized and then you get this, at least the peace of mind that, you know, where your money is, where it's going. And then if you don't have have enough money, you have this like backup, like little fund, which is amazing. I mean, yeah, you're right. Like writing a book, like you can't take any other projects. You're working on the book. How do you go from, like, do you write your financial goals and then decide, okay, based on this, this is how much I need to earn. And maybe I'm not earning enough at the moment. And then maybe I'm going to try to get new clients or increase, increase my prices. Is this how you think or you just, say, okay, I'm happy with what I earn at the moment, or I just want to grow by, you know, 5% or or 10% my my income. Yeah, I set financial goals. And then I try to look at them on a quarterly basis to see where I'm kind of getting to. It's really interesting to think about what drives your goals. And my early goals were driven by basically anger at being made redundant. And so I wanted to, my first financial goal was I have to earn the same, if not more than what I was getting paid, because I need to prove 
to who exactly? To you. <laughs> to me. That it that works. I can, uh, that it works, that I can earn what I was earning by myself and make that money alone. After I sort of hit that, then I, I honestly started just setting fairly arbitrary goals just because I like the sound of the number. But yeah, that is how I do it. I set a goal and then I'm I just kind of like, I work, I sort of try to work towards it. But what the thing that was the tipping point and kind of going back to what we were talking about with sort of thinking about that, that there is an abundance of money is having a shift from the how I earn money and the sort of revenue streams I have. So as we were saying, as a freelancer, you're selling your time for money. And the other problem with that is that there is a cap on that because again, to use me as an example, there are only so many articles that I could write in any week or month. And I can try to keep putting the price up, but you, you reach a limit. Basically there is a ceiling on that. What there isn't a ceiling on is introducing other revenue streams that are scalable. Ones that you can sell multiple copies or versions of this thing, but it's not, it's not directly related to how much work you have to put into it. So, I mean, you know, in theory, a book is kind of one example where I wrote, I wrote the book once and, but I can sell millions, however many copies of of it, millions in theory. And that's not to say that of course, there's no work involved in doing that. There is work, but it's not, it's not the same work of, I'm not sitting down and writing the book again. Every time I sell another copy, I do something, you know, I will mark it and then that will attract multiple people. There are other things that you can do that are scalable as well as a freelancer. The trick is to find revenue streams where they're not dependent on you just doing more work. Um, And so that's where you kind of start to unlock this possibility of infinite earning potential. I'm making it sound like I'm kind of like I'm raking in the multi-millions of multi-million pounds, but like it's more about thinking and the mindset around these things. And so that's also kind of, that's a big part of it. And it's about kind of looking at, okay, well, I have all of these revenue streams, but how much money are they making me versus how much time I'm putting into them? And if I am kind of trying to shift into, I want to earn more or I need to earn more if I'm going to hit this goal, then it's about, okay, well, this revenue stream earns me more money in the in the time that I have. So I might kind of focus on that for right now. And then sort of shift to okay, but actually the work that I find fulfilling is is this is this other work that isn't quite so lucrative, but it's really important yeah. to me to do that work now. I'm on track for hitting my goals, so it's fine for me to spend this time doing that. So it's just again, it's just about having all of that, having that visibility over what you're actually earning and what you're and being clear on what your goals are, so that you're actually making informed decisions. And yeah, I mean, building a platform, you're right, and you know, you've been yeah writing, but now podcasting, like publishing a book, doing all these other things, and trying to leverage a, a bit more what you're doing and I guess you know now we are working online so there's so many things you can do like you know freelancer build your website be on social media you know building strong like Instagram following all of this with time they'll start you know paying off some passive income which which should be fantastic it just takes a a bit of time so now we know freelance life uh, being a small business owner is crazy (laughs) and you have to look after yourself and I love that this was in the book you know there's a big chapter on you know routine because I think you've you came close to to have like a freelancer burnout so how do we take a step back and think about you know organizing our life I mean money is one part of it so I think money issues create a lot of stress and anxiety so definitely like sorting out you know your money and stuff but 
do you have a routine? Do you have maybe daily or weekly? Do you have, you know, boundaries? Because as a freelancer, because you trade, you know, time for money, if you're at your desk all day, you make more money. So why, you know, would it cost you 150 pounds to, you know, to go for a walk? How, how does it work? So I think the first thing is understanding that I don't know what the mathematical term here is, but it's not that I can sit at my desk longer and longer and I can earn more and more because you do get to a point where without, without proper rest, you are not productive. So that is the first thing to understand. I set, I try to set as many boundaries as possible. For me, being resilient, having the ability to bounce back starts with me prioritizing myself first, because again, the multiple puns of my book, you're the business means that if you're not doing well, your business isn't doing well. You are the same person in your life outside of work as you are the person doing work. And that is even more true when you work for yourself. So if you're not feeling great and you're tired and you're stressed and you're burnt out, you just can't work. So it starts by using the tools that you have because you work for yourself, as in the ability to be the master of your own schedule and to set your own time and working hours and actually doing that. And so for me, I put my top priorities at the very beginning of my day. I walk the dog, I do my workout, I eat a good breakfast, I write in my journal, I do all of that stuff that we all know we're supposed to do and people kind of roll their eyes at me included. But ultimately when I start my day like that, it does really help and it does work. And it means, I know it's been, it's going around at the moment, this business of, I can never remember the order of the words, bedtime, revenge, procrastination. So when we stay up late at night, because we felt like we haven't been able to do the things we want to do in our day. So we stay up late at night, scrolling on the internet, messing around, doing things that are for us because we haven't been able to have me time in the day. That's definitely something that resonates with me. And it's definitely something I, you know, every now and then I do. And it's definitely something that I used to do a lot. But the reality is I am asleep and in bed really early these days. You know, I go to bed about nine o'clock because I've done the things I want to do in the daytime. I've put all of, all of my stuff that I want to get done in order of priority. And at the very top of that, it's looking after myself. So that has been such a transformative thing that I have been able to implement. And that's been really, really helpful. And then my other big thing with boundaries is letting the robots do as many of my boundary setting as possible. And what I mean by that is I have a permanent out of office on my emails because I just have one email address for business and life. And I've had the same email address for probably 17 years. So I get a lot of emails. And I have an out of office that basically sets expectations about when I'm going to reply, what I'm not going to reply to, unsolicited PR emails, redirecting queries. So, you know, if someone is getting in touch with me about the podcast or they're getting in touch with me about the book, there are different email addresses to use. All of that stuff, I set it all out in, in and out of office. And I just think it's just an essential for anyone who works for themselves. I think also, even if you work for a company, there are actually quite clever ways that you can put different out of offices on for in, you know, internal and external emails that you receive. So you could in theory put it in out of office on, you know, depends on the type of work you do and, and basically where the pressure points are, but you can email is powerful enough for you to make it actually work for yourself and you not to be a sort of victim of your inbox. I also have lots of templates written out and sort of saved either in my inbox directly or kind of 
elsewhere in Google Docs. So for situations where I'm just saying the same, having to send, send the same information, I have that written out as a template. I use things like Calendly for scheduling. So I just kind of, I help myself by using good digital tools. But all of that said, it's still really, really hard because the reality is burnout happens when you feel like you are putting in more than you are getting out. And I was burned. I got burned out when I worked for an employer, but I also got burned out recently whilst freelancing because it has been really, really hard working for yourself in the middle of a pandemic. So even though I had all of these things in place, I still did experience uh, sort of a phase of burnout, which thankfully I'm now coming out of the other end of because I do have the ability to kind of course correct. And I don't have to sort of like ask anyone's permission to make changes when something isn't working for me, but it's still, it's just your, your likelihood of just feeling constantly stressed is going to be so much higher if you're not prioritizing looking after yourself. Yeah. I com I completely agree with you. It's super hard. And same with you, like, you know, journaling, I think for me was a good one. Trying to exercise. I've been meditating daily for now, like, you know, two, three years. And this was really a game changer for me to, you know, reduce the level of like general anxiety about, you know, I need to do this and that and this. And, and it's the same with you, like at night, you know, being on my phone and browsing for two hours, looking at, you know, literally like crap and then going to bed too late. So now, you know, eating early, going to bed early. And I think the pandemic in a way has been, you know, helpful because you don't need to have all this social life. You can't have it anyway. So, you know, I think it was, you know, a lot of reflection and stuff, but which is not easy, like, you know, taking time for, for yourself. Can I ask you three quick fire questions? What is the best financial decision uh, you've ever taken? I'm going to answer these in the context of freelancing and kind of business. I think the best financial decision I made was investing in help with my business. So I do have a few freelancers that help me and probably the the kind of the main one that I would say in this context to answer the question is a bookkeeper. So I pay a bookkeeper to help me keep my records and kind of make sure that all of my transactions and everything is all in order. That I think is the best decision I ever made because I think the tendency is just to think, oh, I can do everything and that it keeps my costs low when actually sometimes investing in, in something really, really pays off. So I think that probably was my best financial decision. And the worst financial decision. I've been thinking about this one and it's partly, at first I wanted to say it's thinking that free or cheap is the best option. So kind of take it, getting, you know, the free bookkeeping software rather than paying for it or not getting a bookkeeper. But then if I'm really honest, I think it was, I tried to make changes to my business that did kind of like cost money without taking proper advice and without looking outside of myself. So because I'm a freelancer, because I work alone, there's this tendency that like I will make all of my decisions by myself and for myself. And, and that's what makes freelancing so great. But actually, sometimes you need to seek advice from other people, be that professionals, kind of a financial advisor, or you're sort of what I kind of call my sort of freelance advisory board. So other freelancers who know my business pretty well and who can give me really good advice. And so I made a decision not that long ago and it there was some money that it sort of involved. And it's not that I sort of lost like loads and loads of money on a, on a kind of a bad investment. That's kind of not what I'm really talking about. It's more about, I made a business decision without 
seeking proper advice first. It's not that the cost was in financial terms. It was the cost was actually more in the path that I put myself on and the direction that my business was going to take without really kind of thinking it. It's not that I didn't think it through. It was just that I didn't sort of sense check the idea and I didn't bring in others. And I think that definitely, that was the worst financial decision. I guess you learn a lot from this. And, and because you're the business, it's really hard. Like, you know, don't necessarily have employees, advisors, people you can, you know, even if they give you advice, they are not part of your business, which can be quite tricky sometimes. And what are the things you spend the most money on at the moment? So in my personal life, things I'm spending the most money on are food <laughs> and entertainment. Uh, that was like an active choice throughout lockdown. That Food was really the only thing that my partner and I felt that, well, we're not going to limit ourselves. It's the only thing we've got to enjoy, both, you know, nice takeaways and also getting kind of like great ingredients for making food at home. So that was the thing that I was kind of splurging on. What I'm spending the most money on in my business is taking on help. So like I said, kind of like investing in a bookkeeper, hiring a freelancer to sort of help me out with the odd job here and there. What I really, really want to do at this kind of stage of where I'm at is hire a virtual assistant, basically. Um, I want someone to be able to help me more with admin, emails, scheduling, all of the things that are eating up my time when... I could really invest in having someone else help me with that. But it's a, that's that's definitely a real, it's a real challenge when you, when you are just kind of one person and you sort of, you don't know how to kind of like navigate that. Thank you. Do you have anything else that you want to share, recommend to, you know, anyone listening? I think the most important thing for anyone who is working for themselves or thinking about working for themselves in regards to money is to appreciate and realize what what a big part thinking about and talking about money plays when you are running a business. And that was like a real big shift for me that I went from discussing my salary once a year to thinking about money on a daily basis. And so you just have to find some way, whatever way you can to get comfortable with that. And that means being brave and opening up your bank account every day and not hiding from it, finding someone to kind of talk about money with finding a resource for financial education that actually kind of like jives with you, you know, like it's no good trying to read financial advice that you just don't yeah. think that doesn't really sit with you. You need to kind of find people who are talking in your language and people whose advice, obviously not only that you trust in is, you know, is sound advice, but also that makes sense to you. And so those I think are really, really important things for anyone kind of navigating the money side of working for yourself. Thank you so much. So where can we find you? I mean, first of all, you need to buy Anna's book, You're the Business. It's really excellent. And, you know, we'll be promoting it on, on Vespod. Your website, anacotrerado.com. Is social media a good way to get in touch with you? Yeah, definitely. So I'm at Anacod on Twitter and Instagram. And yeah, everything kind of, I link everything and in on both of those platforms and talk about everything that's I'm doing there. So those are probably the best places to find me. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk to you today. And thanks for opening up about money. I'm sure it's, it's going to be super useful. I'm actually going to send this book to a few of the freelancers I'm working with because I'm sure they will love it. And I hope I, I'll see you soon. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, 
please take a couple of seconds to rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Also, don't forget to join our community on Instagram and Facebook and to subscribe to our newsletter on Vespot.com. Feel free to email me with your comments and questions over at emily at Vespot.com. Thank you. Speak to you soon. <laughs>